This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. I am really excited about today's show because I got to sit down with one of my favorite people in the world, one of the people I work most closely with, Melissa Bell. Melissa is my co-founder at Vox.com. There would be no Vox without Melissa. She's one of the most talented thinkers about the media, one of the most talented managers, one of the most talented product managers I have ever worked with or seen or met or known of. She was recently named publisher of all of Vox Media, so her power has become unimaginable. One of the real joys of, of doing the show is getting to talk to someone I already know really well and getting to ask them questions that would be weird if I asked them them in normal life. And I, I got to do that here with Melissa. I learned uh, talking to her a lot about her very strange winding path to journalism. It is a joke in Vox how many insane experiences Melissa's had, and you'll hear about a bunch of them here. We talked a lot about her style of management and the way she is able to both formally and informally figure out who can get Get things done and figure out how to make things get done, even within larger bureaucracies. I think that what she talks about in this show is really applicable to, to anyone trying to make change in an organization. We talk a lot about where the media is going, how Vox came to be, what we were right about and what we were wrong about. Melissa is often more positive about things than I am. You'll hear that a little bit in this episode. But it was just a, a joy to get to talk to her. I really enjoyed it. If you're interested in the media, if you're interested in where digital journalism is going, if you're interested in how to run or think about running these kinds of organizations. I think you'll really like this. And Melissa, both in recent years and in her new position, is one of the people who's going to be shaping where digital journalism is going. So very much worth listening to. As always, a couple quick requests for you before we get into the episode. Please rate us on iTunes. It is one way people find this show. Another way people find the show is when you share it. So please tweet it at folks, Facebook it, email it to your parents, whatever you may do. Uh, please listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, where Matt Iglesias, Sarah Cliff, and myself talk deep, deep, deep thoughts about policy. And finally, continue to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with your feedback, your guest requests, whatever you might want to tell me. With that, here's Melissa Bell. You can you can drink some water. No, no, no. I'm like you I'm don't want any water. No, I'm totally nervous. Just start. We talk all the time. I know, but I'm going to keep this part in too. <laughs> Great. Okay. <laughs> it makes it seem more informal and collegial. <laughs> okay, just start. Melissa Bell. Hi. Why is your life so interesting? 
I'm so excited to do this podcast with you because it is a way of <laughs> dealing with the fact that during the workday, you're constantly telling some story about being in Italy during the most interesting thing that's ever happened. And you just offhandedly mention them. And I'm finally going to get to understand the strange path of your life. Melissa Bell explained. I don't know if I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> how did you get it? How did you get into journalism? It's a twisting tale. I know. <laughs> as many things are. That's why a hundred years after we started working together, I still don't understand it. <laughs> I don't know. There's many There's many entry points. I loved reading as a kid. And I think that that was... What uh, was your favorite book? My favorite... When I was a kid? When you were a kid. The Boxcar when Children. When you were a kid and when you were a teen. When I was a kid, The Boxcar Children. I loved that book. It's about kids that are these four kids that run away from home and live in a boxcar. Do you know my favorite book when I was a kid? What? The Dragon Riders of Pern. <laughs> What's that about? Dragon Riders? People who rode dragons <laughs> in a place called Pern. <laughs> Do you feel like it says anything about you as an adult today? No, I actually have very little interest in trying to fight um, flaming thread falling down from the heavens. <laughs> there is Most people in the podcast are not going to know what I'm talking about here, but like 14 are going to be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's going, the thing. Is going that narrow here. You're able to like attach to like the very loyal audience. When I was a teenager, I was really caught up in like the Jane Eyre, Jane Austen. This is before that was cool. Yeah, I was such a little, such a little nerd, (laughs) climbing trees in San Diego and reading books. And how did you go from? You went to college at Georgetown, yeah. Yes. Why San Diego to Georgetown? Because I was in California too, and in California we have the UC system, so people leave much less frequently. So why did you come to Washington? My mother made a mistake when she was a teenager and left (laughs) the East Coast and moved to California, or she claims it was a mistake, and raised all of her kids in California, and thinks that we turned out a little too kooky. And she took me on an East Coast tour, hoping that she could spring one of her kids from the California state. And she did. And I think she I think that she sprang me a little too far because I've yet to go back to California. But I saw Georgetown. This is how I make decisions in life. I saw Georgetown on the tour and I thought it was so beautiful because it was this Gothic cathedral. Mm -hmm. So it really like my Wuthering Heights heart just (laughs) was filled with joy. And I went to school there. And Georgetown was an interesting place. I mean, it was so different from San Diego. It's so it's it was a complete and total confusing mind meld of Catholic school upbringings, East Coast prep kids. It was so different from from Southern California. East Coast, the East Coast prep kid college world is really something different. I yes. mean, when I, when I came here, because I had not experienced any of that before, I was really struck by how culturally alien I felt around people who had, you know, gone to these East Coast colleges and who really seemed to know each other. Like, I didn't know fucking anybody. Yeah. But there's really, there is really a culture it's going to, I don't want to like spend this whole time, but like, this is like where you start to see like the privilege in America totally. so rot perfectly well. I had a privileged upbringing. Like I was raised by the ocean in San Diego. Like it was a lovely, you know. <laughs> I was lo- raised by the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I had a privileged updating. Poseidon was my father. <laughs> this is why my life sounds I controlled weird. waves. <laughs> Um, yes, little known fact. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to complain about my, I had a great, I was very lucky as a child, but you come back East and you see that just how closely tied these binds are that prop up one large part of, um, or one small part of, um, our country. And these kids go to the same school. They spend mm-hmm. the same summers together at country clubs. It's a totally different world. And they're prepared in a way that you're never prepared. You know, I went to a public school in California that was a good public school. But my work compared to the work that they were they were doing at a school like Andover, it was just night and day difference. I mean, it's such a huge foot forward. 
so yeah, I went to Georgetown and then I, Georgetown opened my eyes to the world. I was able to study religion there. One of the things about Jesuit education is that they really have a focus on religion. So I, I became really entranced with Hinduism and Buddhism and weird weird classes that my parents were questioning every time they <laughs> saw my transcripts. <laughs> and then I was able to sort of head, I started heading east. Most most people say go west and I, I went east and I kept going until for a large part of my life, until I hit India. And that was where I started really. Wait, how did you make the decision to go to India? And was it right after college? No, it wasn't after college. So this is the twisty part. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like the, something was getting hidden and then I went east and I went east. And I went east. <laughs> there was like a little uh, bit of a yada, yada, yada there. There was a little bit of a yada, yada. I moved to New York. So I didn't go east. I went north. Two weeks before before 9-11, I moved into an apartment with my best friend from college. And that was a really, that was a time in my life where I didn't really know what I was going to do. I thought that I should do what I was, uh, that I had learned from my family, which was to become a lawyer. So I went to New York. I was applying to law school. I got a job as a legal assistant. There's almost like a assembly line for a lot of these colleges where it's, you go to, the, you go to college, you become an investment banker, you become a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was on the assembly line that was headed towards law. And I moved to New York. My office was a couple blocks from the Trade Center on the morning of um, 9-11. I was, I don't, I actually don't really like talking about this now. I'm talking about it on a podcast um, <laughs> with you. Thanks, that's, that's, that's a secret of podcasts. <laughs> Things you don't like talking about and don't tell your friends, tell the public. <laughs> Suffice it to say, I was one of, you know, I was, I was on my way to work and I saw a lot of really horrible, tragic things and, that morning. And that didn't immediately spring me into action, but I definitely felt a futility to my work. I felt a futility to my existence. I felt a futility that I couldn't help. That morning, you sort of were able to help certain people on the path down there. I always, this is something that I do. This is like my little lesson from therapy is that I always say you instead of me. (laughs) So I was down there and I was helping you. I was trying to help people. Oh, that's so interesting. See how it works? It's really funny. Yeah. Anyway, suffice it to say, after that, I just felt a little lost. So I... Were you... Did you go to the site and try to help people? I you At a certain point, you could only get down a few blocks from it. And Mm -hmm. then the building, the first building fell. We would all run north and then we would move back to try to help. And then the second building would fall and then you'd run north again. I would run north again. And then after a time, the police had quarantined it off. And at that point, everyone was moving north. There's one moment that I tell people, though, that there was a certain moment that I was running because there was a lot of misinformation happening. And so you'd have a you'd have a radio playing. It felt sort of in this like, you know, 1950s world where Rudy Giuliani would be on a radio in a car and everyone would be sort of gathered around the car. And then somebody would say that there was another explosive planted nearby. And so then everyone would start running away from it. And at a certain point, I remember really clearly running past a table where a man was seated at an outside cafe reading a paper still. And I felt like we were passing through two different time zones. Uh, oh, wow. So anyway, after that uh, horrible tragedy that I'm saying in a high-pitched voice, I left New York and moved back home to San Diego and worked as a waitress. And I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I ended up taking a job in Colorado on a mountain uh, where I snowboarded for um, this winter and worked as a waitress and was really... <laughs> what did you... I'm so deeply envious of the spirit of your life. What, what did you learn from that? You were there for about a year? I was. I did this for two winters. So in the winter, I'd work in, in Vail, and then in the summer, I'd work in San Diego. And then in the fall and spring, I would, I would travel. I realized that I really liked to work, that 
I had a passion for trying to get to know people. I think this is the funniest part about waiting tables is that you get to have little mini interviews with every table when you Uh meet them. So I think that it actually helped me figure out how to strike up conversations with people and how to get into some of their personal lives very quickly in between entrees. Did you have tricks uh, (laughs) in your your mini interviews or for forging a quick connection with a patron? So one thing that um, I think is really true for interviews too, and I think you do this really well, is telling a little bit about yourself that lets people feel comfortable opening up to them. So yeah, it's super manipulative. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) or it's just you know nice exchange of information. But that was one way to get people to to kind of feel comfortable. You'd also start to learn how to read people really well and understand when a person did not want to talk to you Mm -hmm. and when a person didn't. I mean, the other thing about it was that it was one of the most like athletic times in my life. I felt so strong. I was Mm -hmm. snowboarding. I was swimming every morning when I was living in San Diego, and that lifestyle was incredible. I I miss it. You know, living in cities now. don't have the freedom to just walk at, walk into your backyard and jump into the ocean or, you know, go down a mountain. I feel so badly about how little I used the ocean <laughs> when I was growing up in Irvine, <laughs> given how much I miss it now. Do you, are you one of those people that goes back and just like spends a ton of time at the ocean now or are you... No, because when I go back, I mean, my family, like me when I live there, never, ever goes to yeah. the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> and when I go back, I'm there to see my family. So I don't get to use it very much. But when I'm in places where I have more control, I, yeah, I like just like sit in the water. But see, this is the thing about Californians is that everyone thinks that we spend all of the time in the water, but most people who live there, I think that you become um, acclimated to wherever you live. So it's like, that's, you know, why would we go down to the beach? One, one story, one observation. I had in my third grade class, an exchange student from Japan. And at the end of her time in the class, uh, you know, we're all saying goodbye. And she was asked by the teacher, well, what surprised you about living in California? And she said, oh, well, I was told that everybody surfs to school. <laughs> and that is not true. <laughs> so I thought it was very funny. Um, I don't miss the ocean as much as I miss mountains. When I went to UC Santa Cruz, I spent a lot of time up in Big Sur. And I really love Big Sur. It's one of my favorite places in the world. And I really miss like that quality of air, those kinds of trees. Uh, you know, when you go to Big Sur, like there is actually ocean there, but it's very cold. You don't go, you don't go in it unless you're a much better surfer than I am and have a wetsuit and the whole thing. But I really miss, I, I miss the incredible variety of beautiful ecosystems that California has. There's just nothing like it where you can go to Joshua Tree and be in the desert. You can go to a beautiful ocean. You can be in the mountains. It's really, it's a hell of a state. And why I don't live there now is hard to explain to myself. It's hard to explain to everyone. I mean, I think that that's the thing about living on the East Coast and living in in like really dense cities is you forget how soul restoring (laughs) walking into the woods can be or, you know, just that. I mean, I just don't think that we have enough of that. It's one of the things actually, you know, this, I always have had a little bit of like a chip on my shoulder about living in Washington, D.C., but I always feel really proud of our country's developers when they made the capital focus beyond large parks and uh, museums. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that actually says something really strong about what we what we respect in this country is that yeah. we wanted to have like a knowledge space and open fields, I guess. Yeah, but your chip on the shoulder is compared to fucking New York. <laughs> <laughs> like DC is like a wooded paradise compared to Manhattan. I know, but like it's... <laughs> I live right next to Rock Creek Park. <laughs> yeah, but I I've, see this is the thing is that I feel like I'm a little bit of a person of extremes. You either are like <laughs> full city experience or full nature. I don't want to just have this like 
happy medium that that would be miserable. Okay, so you're good at talking to people. You learn that you like working. You are a <laughs> snowboarding, swimming powerhouse. <laughs> so, it and seems then, like a really strange time in my it life. It seems really cool. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that I loved about it was that I, I, I love traveling so much. The first time that I ever was able to travel in the world was when I was 14 and I'd earned enough money babysitting to go to pay for a school trip to England and Scotland. And my parents were great about letting me. a hell of a babysitter. I was a really good babysitter. I, re- I, spent, I spent all of seventh and eighth grade. I, it's so funny now because like I look at 12 year olds and I'm like, somebody entrusted me with their child. It just yeah. seems so, it seems so crazy, but a lot of people did. So I've always been really passionate about going out into the world. And the, that, that two year period let me do that. I was able to backpack through Eastern Europe. I was able to go down to Mexico. I was able to go a lot of places. And then I realized that you can do that as a journalist and get paid to do it. And that's where that's when I became interested in journalism. I also sort of had this idea that maybe one day I could be a book editor and I just could get paid to read books. Mm -hmm. And so maybe if I was like a journalist for a little while, I could transition into that. So I went to grad school at Northwestern and they offer a quarter abroad and journalism school a journal, at the journalism school. Yeah. It's a year long program. I, I didn't remember that, that you really? went to J school. Yeah. 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 I know. It's, it's so funny because I feel like you are actually so much more of a journalist, but your background in journalism is like ditching the school newspaper and sort of... Not ditching, being rejected <laughs> by. Let's be real clear here. I was trying to be <laughs> polite about that. <laughs> Not actually making the school paper. Yeah, right. My background is doing no journalism, <laughs> then over? criticizing journalists for a while. <laughs> and then, then, <laughs> and then, then, then trying to write articles. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to J school and, and I think that like what I saw with that was that I was... I was so hungry for for school after a couple of years of not of not really. Um, Are you good at school? I, yeah, I am good. At, I'm a I'm a nerd. You know that. No, I, but that's not the same thing. I'm also a nerd, that's but true. I'm really bad at school. Yeah, but this is so fascinating. Why you're not good at school? Because you don't like lecturing. You like a different form. You like this kind of interactive. Yeah. I still think that you would have been good in like Socrates style teaching. Um, no, I like I love school. I thought I thought it was really good. I mean, this is the this is why I thought law school might be interesting was because I was really good at logic tests. Oh, interesting. So yeah. I was like great at like the LSAT. Like that's like a really unmarketable skill. No, it's not. It's an extremely well, marketable skill. <laughs> taking taking standardized <laughs> tests. I mean, it gets you into school, but it does like after that. Like, I'm. It's not like, hey, oh. do you want to come and fill out bubbles in a? It's ABC? not like making dream catchers. I mean, like <laughs> <That's> this. <true>. <laughs> <laughs> what What was your LSAT? Uh, I can't tell. <laughs> It wasn't even that good. If it was like 180, then I would say it. I don't even know if it goes that high. Anyway, long story short, I I liked getting back into school. And I think that a lot of people came there who were either just straight out of school or had been practicing journalism for a little while. Mm -hmm. And I had been doing neither. So I came and I was just like thrilled. I was like, you're going to let me go up to random people on the street and ask some questions. And that's okay. Like that's allowed. I was really into the grad program. And then they offered an international program where they would put you up. They would find an internship for you. But I didn't want to go to Europe or South America because I'd had experiences there. So they offered India or Cambodia. And again, my decision making skills are so off the cuff. India sounded to me like it had a little bit more of a role to play in sort of like the rising It's funny. It's funny. You do this like you say my decision making skills were off the cuff and then you explain like 
I made an extremely <laughs> logical decision that my projection of future world affairs had India, the second largest democracy. Like that's not, like that's not like flipping a coin. Like you're, you're too kind hard of, on but yourself. it felt like I was flipping a coin. Like it really did. I mean, it was like kind of a split second decision. Maybe there was some context in my head, but I ended up in India and I was there for three months and I fell madly and deeply and passionately. Who was your internship with? The Hindustan Times. Okay. I worked for the Sunday paper and they were very sweet. They gave me the most, the most incredible assignment where basically I went around and wrote about different religious communities. And in India, there's hundreds. So I was able to go spend a week with the Sufis and learn about their practices and then write a, a column about it. It was wonderful. That's a great internship. I know. It was a really, it was a really incredible internship. And they have such good SEO. <laughs> the Hindustan Times does? Yeah. I'm so I come proud across of them. the Hindustan Times good. a bunch in, yeah. in Google searches. Yeah. They're a good paper. They actually were one of the first to really understand the internet over in India. They eventually launched a partnership with the Wall Street Journal and started a business paper called Mint after my internship was out, over. I didn't realize Mint was a, a, par- was a partnership. partnership of those two. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I left, I left after my internship, but then I was brought back to help launch Mint six months later or so. And then I stayed there for... What was your job at Mint? I worked on the weekend magazine. So I always thought of myself that I would be a magazine writer one day because if it wasn't going like to be Everybody books, who gets in journalism right. is... <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it was like, I like was like, okay, I'm not going to be a book editor. So maybe like I'll go down to, like maybe I'll do magazine editing. And now it's gotten like, then I eventually went all the way down to blog. So it was kind of this like funny transition. But I was working on the Sunday magazine. I covered art and architecture and design and I was an editor and writer. What's your favorite story you did during that period? I don't know. There's a million. One that I keep thinking about, though, that keeps popping in my head is I have a I have a case pending against me in the Supreme Court um, in Excuse India. Me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I told you this. No. Yeah. There's a chance that I might be in trouble. So I wrote a story that was like just a pretty simple story about a man's house kind of explaining like his decoration, his uh, interior decoration. And he commented on some of his statues that have like a historical religious rationale. And they are the covers of lingams. And lingam in the Hindu religion is a representation of Shiva. And sometimes he is represented as the male shape and the covers he referred to as ancient condoms. And I quoted him on that. And somebody put a case against us saying that that was an affront to their religion. So that popped and in my head. And it's gone up the... No, Indian I mean, middle. this is the, this is something... Actually, it's really interesting right now. It's happening in India in the Supreme Court system there. They have they are overwhelmed with cases. And this is a book... Have you read Behind the Beautiful Forevers? Yet? Yeah. Okay. So there, so that, so that in that book, if everyone's read it, it's um, by Catherine Boo. It took me years to read because when I left India, I had such a hard time leaving that I didn't want to read anything about it mm-hmm. or have any like reminders of it. But I just read it a few months ago and they talk about how the court system is trying to create these like expedited court systems to deal with the amount of court cases that they have in there. So I'm not sure where it is. It might've gone through that and passed and I'm okay at this point. But (laughs) (laughs) a couple of the stories that I wrote that I really loved were travel stories. I did one where I drove a rickshaw across the top of India and I was able to see, it was a really, I mean, it was, it was a kind of terrifying time because Nepal was sort of going through one of its like rebellion periods. So we were caught in Southern Nepal during one of like the Maoist uprisings. And I was an idiot driving a rickshaw like through tortured space, but I was able to, you're able to kind of get into the kind of like a comedic standpoint with people at that point. Mm -hmm. So they're able to be much more relaxed and open and, and 
have fun with you, I think, rather than having to be a little bit more serious. One of the things that I loved being out there is that I was out there with a lot of like really great foreign correspondents who were covering really heavy stories. And I was able to learn from a lot of them, both Indian journalists and then also a lot of um, American journalists as well. And we had a I felt like I had an incredible education while I was there watching some of these people do their work. So that was another part of it that I loved. And then I came back here. What was the hardest part of living in India? Being away from my family, it was a 24-hour flight home. And eventually that that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to come back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Just it, it's hard to know that even if, if something happens or you can't, you can't get back for right. 24 hours. And that, that scared me. Mm-hmm. All right. And so you come back to the U.S. Do you go directly to the Post yes. at this point? Yes. And this is through Raju? Mm-hmm. So Raju Narasetti is actually mm-hmm. who brought both of us to the yep. post, right? Raju was the editor at Mint, and then he left Mint. And I stayed in for another year. I stayed in India and was working sort of as a freelancer. And then came back and had dinner with a few friends here and thought that perhaps I should apply to the post. And came to the post on, I had, it was sort of a funny setup. It was a six-month contract while um, a woman was um, on maternity leave. And again, I was working for a weekly section of the paper. So still sort of that magazine style within the larger newspaper. And then six months in is when the post, I think Raju was starting to really push sort of a, a need to figure out digital at the post. And it was when I believe he brought you to the post. When did you come? I came in, I want to say it was May of 2009. Okay. So I came in 2010. Oh, so I was there first. You were there first. I know. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Let's cut so I'm it. more of a post veteran than you are. <laughs> I always thought you'd been there for like three years more than I do. <laughs> me knowing nobody and you knowing everybody in the newsroom. <laughs> yeah, but see, this is like what's so, this is what I love about our, like the differences between us is that you were so focused. You didn't care about f- figuring out that there was a fourth floor or a fifth floor. You just were doing your work. I was much more interested in kind of like untangling the intricacies. Do you, of, do you know how I came to the post? How? I was part of a, I believe, as I understand it, a sort of weird ad buy with Microsoft. Really? Yeah. This is my vague understanding, and it's not 100%, but there was some kind of camp, like an editorial Are you saying sponsorship. that Microsoft bought you? Yeah, I'm, I'm owned by Microsoft. <laughs> no, it, 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 the way it worked was that they were sponsoring a package around solutions. Mm-hmm. And there was like money that came in through that package. And so I was hired and I just, I had nothing to do with Microsoft sponsorship, but some subset of my work was rerouted into this landing page, like that was called solutions. And like (laughs) the work lived on my main page too, but it was the way, you know, in a very, I mean, when I came, which is way before you came, it was (laughs) just the worst of the budget crisis. I mean, it was the fourth round of buyouts. It was cake time where somebody was leaving four or five times a day. I mean, it was the most brutal place to be. And they did not have money. They were, they were cutting positions. They did not have money to expand. And so I got kind of backdoored in in this weird way in order to give them like sort of continuous bloggish content to help populate that. this landing page. I never had any you know relationship with that right. uh, deal. But my understanding is like that is how they were able to get budget to add up body during that, which was to say like, oh, it's, you know, it'll help us make this, you know, work. sponsorship work out. Yeah. It's so, I mean, it's really interesting because like I felt like that, that time at the post was such a time of, kind of scrappy 
solutioneering yeah. around all of these difficult problems. And I mean, it's it's funny to think about like an editorial sponsorship is this like quirky editorial sponsorship is the reason why you were able to come in there. But that is how it worked. That's why I was I was brought in on this contract deal. Yeah. And then I was kind of like, you know, moved into another role very quickly after that. I mean, I don't know what your reaction was when you got there, but I had been out of the country for four years. And so I sort of missed the recession. I, I obviously had heard about it and I obviously had been reading about it. But in India, India had been going through such a huge period of growth that it was this like really exciting, vibrant time. The ad campaign was incredible in India and there was nothing but launches and startups and this real feeling of entering the world stage for for the country. Um, and then I came back to the U.S. in January of 2010. And the morning of the, my first day at work, I took a photo, very excited and happy. My, you know, my boyfriend shot it and I was like going to be like my first day at work. <laughs> and then I got to the post and it was like this just devastated, mm-hmm. you know, really terrified environment. And it took me it took me years to really understand how how heavy hit and how emotionally devastating that time had been for the people that worked there. It was a traumatized institution. And I, I completely hadn't expected that. I mean, so I had looked like as a blogger and particularly a blogger sort of during the Iraq war era, I was part of a critique of the press and sort of non-objective, objective journalism and all these different things. And, you know, I would like take on these articles and argue with Fred Hyatt's op-ed page and all, and all of this. But I also had some like very fundamental, like bone deep respect and admiration for these institutions mm-hmm. and a kind of belief that, you know, I could take my pot shots and it, I, I never interrogated this way, but like I could take my pot shots from the side, but this was the fucking Washington Post. It was the New York Times. Everybody there had to be the best in class, right? They all knew what they were doing. I mean, these seem, the, these institutions seemed when I was growing up invincible. They're just part of the architecture of American life. And then I got there and it was a place in just such unbelievable pain. Mm-hmm. And it was very disconcerting. And it was also very intimidating at the same time. You know what was absolutely crucial for me at the Washington Post for succeeding there? I came in, I was so intimidated and I was seated in a kind of weird area near editors. So I didn't really interact with anybody because none of the editors were my <laughs> editor either. And I did I did develop some wonderful friendships with those editors like Kelly Johnson. But I don't know if you were there when this happened, but the post got remodeled at a certain point, right? We you know, redid the fifth floor and, you know, put in more green accents. It was a strange remodeling. But we had to move in what they called swing space in this side building. So the whole business team moved in there. And because we were moved and crammed into this space, I was sitting with the business writers. We, you know, I was part of the business section. And it was only after a couple months of that where I could finally be like, oh, these are just human being writers. Like some things they know more about than me, some things I know more about than them. I can work harder. Like there's a way for me to, to succeed. It, it took like that for my just anxiety about how out of place I was there to settle down. I mean, what you're describing is it's it's really true. I think and I think that this is a weird part about growing up that kind yeah. of terrifies me. So I was Your in, heroes spend the first part of the day playing trash basketball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is I, I, re- I recognize this when this happened to me. I think I can't remember when I was covering it must have been 2005. I, I covered the State of the Union when Bush was president and somebody that that experienced 9-11 in New York and then seeing the direction that we took, I had some some frustrations and fears about our government. But 
when I was in the press box, I still think that I really felt like, you know what, it's like there are people above me who are building our country and have control of our country. And there's this greater group of brilliant minds that are making decisions that I'm not aware of. But then I was in the press box and I looked down on the senators and the president and I realized these are people that could be friends with my dad. (laughs) And they're, they're probably really smart men and women, and they're probably very dedicated to their work and they have a lot more experience than I do. But at the end of the day, like they're human beings that are just trying to do their best or making mistakes along the way. And that terrifies me. Like that terrifies me. And I think that as I get older, I realize this more and more now we have to recognize that there's limitations that we all have. And I, I, I think that when I was younger, I wanted to believe that, that there's going to be smarter people taking care of the big decisions. I also think it's like a little liberating at the same time because there's, we got to figure it out. Being an adult is just watching the curtain get pulled back on Oz, like again (laughs) and again and again and again on your heroes, on your colleagues, on the institutions, on the government, on your family. Like, you know, the thing that has been the continuous lesson for me as a reporter has been recognizing how little information even the most informed people have, Mm -hmm. like how bad their information often is. Mm -hmm. I will never forget when I started talking to members of Congress as part of my job. And I was like 21, 22. And I was at the American Prospect. And they would, I'd be asking them about something, whatever, I don't remember what now. And they would always say, well, what are you hearing? And initially, I I thought it was a weird affectation, Mm -hmm. you know, like they're saying like, and how are you doing? But they meant it like they didn't know what was going on. So they thought maybe I as a reporter knew. I was like, wow, like you're a senator. Isn't there some secret newspaper you get that has all the actual information? And the answer is no, there isn't. Like they just don't know what's going on. They don't know what their colleagues are doing. They don't have all the facts. Like they're making decisions and they don't have time. Mm -hmm. Something's really changed in my writing since we started Vox is I think so much more about uh, management stress and like time stress Mm -hmm. on people in power. Mm -hmm. And I'm always very alert to the idea that like somebody might be smart, but if you look at what they're doing and it's clear that there's no way a human being can do all that and still be learning or still be like getting in new information, that you actually have to take that stuff into account that people are very limited. As you see, like there is something liberating about it, But it's also scary. It also, the one thing it has done, and sorry, I know I'm rambling here, but it has definitely made me more skeptical of myself too, right? When I was a 19 or 20-year-old blogger, I felt really fucking cocksure telling people how it was. And seeing people who I really respect and recognizing their limitations, it has also made me very humble about my own because like the the lesson for me is not like these people are idiots it's that human beings are constrained i think that this is one of the reasons why i really fell in love with internet writing because it allows you to show that you're in a conversation and that you're discovering and that you're in a process of learning and that process never ends yeah you were probably a little bit more cocksure when you were 19 but it still is there's there's been a continuous education that you've been that you've been mm-hmm. doing almost publicly um very publicly yeah I, including not the bad almost, parts. <laughs> yeah there's a participatory aspect too where people inform you at a much rapid more rapid pace and i think that that's why i like where we are, where we are able to use that as an ongoing thing and not have it be, not have writing that comes across as like the ultimate end th- point. Do you think we're losing that though? Do we, I do mean, we think don't we're you losing think that? Compared, let, let's, let's 
turn it inward here. Don't you think compared to 10 years ago, five years ago, mm-hmm. what we are doing at Vox is less like that? Yes, because we're not doing the blogging back and forth. Yeah, because everything's like packaged for social. And, right. and also, I used to think that was an internet writing thing, what you're talking mm-hmm. about. And now I think it was a partially an internet writing thing, partially a form of thing, but also a bit of a prestige issue. Maybe not prestige, but like a, there is something in the way I have found this myself, like in the way that you have to write as you have more of an institution writing on you, as you're representing more, where it's much harder to say, hey, like I just don't know, or maybe I'll just get this wrong. Because if you get this wrong, you're hurting everybody else who works with you. Right. Like you have this collective responsibility. And when I was like an individual blogger, the person who paid was me. And right. like that was OK. Like I could I could pay that cost. But putting aside my role as like editor in chief of Vox, like any of our writers or even me at a certain point at The Washington Post when I had Wonk blog, if I fucked up, like I hurt Sarah Cliff mm-hmm. and like I don't want to hurt Sarah Cliff. All of a sudden it became very different. Yeah, I think that's true. But that's I think that you're seeing that from the perspective of like the, the responsibility that you have given yourself. And some great Twitter followers comes great responsibility. responsibility. <laughs> 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 but I mean, it's not the thing is, though, is that like you you're in a different you're in almost like in a different space because of the fact that it's not just that you are responsible for you're responsible for an institution. You're also and you're responsible for a team that you've that we've built, you know, really. But I think the writers are, too. I think that they are too, but I still think that there is an engagement there. I, I don't think we've gone so far off and maybe it's, maybe this is the problem that I don't, that I think that we have. Like, I think that the problem that we have across the, across the internet is that it's the voices of many can kind of shape conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's problematic. It's almost like the individual voices can sometimes be lost in it because it's so many conversations happening at once. And that's where I feel like it get, you get this like confusion of like, a huge amount of voices that can bring up topics, but then also bury topics or drop things too fast or not provide any, any real clarity to people. And, um, and that's what I worry about more than whether or not we're still, whether we've lost like that conversational aspect. I almost feel like the conversations have just gotten like louder and louder and louder and more wide ranging. And that's, that's what I don't think we've figured out. All right. Let me pull us back into chronology here. I'm going to pick up part of this story. Because mm-hmm. I meet you shortly after this. And the way we meet is, to me, very puzzling. <laughs> I have a very clear memory of when I met you, but I don't know if it's the right memory. So you probably remember better. So I was moving from having the Ezra Klein blog at the Washington Post to creating Wonk blog. And part of doing that meant we needed a redesign. Like the blog was really badly built, like not badly built, but it wasn't built for multiple contributors. I mean, there was it just needed to, to be redone. And... It was very hard to figure out within the bureaucracy, like who was responsible for that. Like it was very puzzling to me, actually. And what was really puzzling about it, though, was that after I thought I had figured it out and I was like talking to the you know head of design or whatever it was, they kept bringing this person named Melissa Bell into meetings. <laughs> and then at some point you were the one setting the meetings, but you were another blogger. <laughs> and nobody would like have a meeting with me if you weren't there, <laughs> but you had no authority over anyone in the process or any evident role in what was going on, but just had somehow become the center of the thing. So what did you do at the Washington Post? 
<laughs> don't know exactly. <laughs> so I had a blog. I was writing for the paper. And then um, Raju came to me and was basically like, we want to start this blog that is our first attempt at like aggregating news and, you know, trying to figure out what the Huffington Post does and how can we how can we take the Washington Post and use some of the the technical aspects of the web to make our information better and more available to people. And I very clearly remember saying to him, no, I have I had a blog that was a personal blog. The blog was my play space and I didn't feel like I should bring it into my professional life. I was very it took me a long time to kind of figure out that you can have your play space be your workspace. Now I think I figured it out too much. But um, it's for another, it's for another. I think you're actually right the first time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I should have kept it. I should have kept it separate. I work too much. But um, anyway, point is, I moved into this blog a little unwillingly. But again, it was one of those things when I walked into it and started to started to write this blog, I became just totally captivated by it. I loved that that constant flow of information, that that conversational aspect of it. It was really fun. It was also totally set up in, in an insane fashion. You mentioned that you were sitting with like the editors that didn't edit you. It was similarly, similarly set up for me. There was, it was very confusing. And the reason for that was because there was so much that was needing to be fixed and changed at the post that I felt like a lot of times there was big spaces that were folks couldn't concentrate on. And I really felt like one of the biggest spaces was our blogs at the post. We had 113 blogs at a certain point. They just kind of kept making blogs in a way to kind of figure out some digital output from the different desks. And there was nobody who was who was sort of minding that field. We didn't have great technology. We didn't have great like editing systems. I also was worried that we were sometimes making the wrong choices about what we were investing time and resources into it. Nobody was really like, thinking about it. They were all really busy and the staff was shrinking and all of that. So I guess what I did at the post was I just sort of started to pay attention to the blogs and started to advocate for them and started to push for more resources and push for more technology. And I got to know people in the office. I got to know the developers. I got to know the designers. There was a time period where I felt like I was almost researching the post. I felt like it was a little investigation to get to know who did what Companies, when they get big, it's very complicated. You don't know who's responsible for what. It's something that I think about a lot is how do you provide clarity to somebody like you who has an idea and wants to create that idea but has no idea on how to actually realize it. So I just started doing it kind of on the side. And then eventually I didn't make that many mistakes. And so the the bosses said I could do it for real. So, But I actually want to – I've been kind of leading us here because I want to talk about – this is a real – skill you have. It's a skill that I've seen many, many times that I'm very admiring of. And I think is actually worth drawing out in a more systematic way because the people who have power in an institution and who can get things done more to the point are not always the people in the position. And something that I think you've been very good at doing in the places I've seen you is mapping organizations and like figuring out who are the people who can get things done and like how do you connect with them and creating very sort of informal networks of influence. How do you do that? How do I do that? There, I don't remember when this was in my life, but actually I do know this is going to sound so crazy, but um, I did a 10th grade research paper on Leo Tolstoy and we had to read Anna Karenina and it turned out that I actually did the research on his wife 
And his wife was really his editor, and she transcribed all of his work, and she shaped it, and she sat there with, you know, this really brilliant madman and made his work stronger and better and, and more incredible. And I remember thinking, this is when I kind of was thinking about a book editor position when I was younger. I loved this idea of like taking a creative person's work and helping push that forward and making something really great out of it. I think that this is being part of the creative process to me is always what excites me the most, like helping really, really creative people do their work is what excites me. And so I think the first thing is just like finding those creative people and seeing, you know, sort of figuring out who are the people who want to do awesome work. And a lot of times I think it's funny because like, I think that people are, people are shy and people are some, you know, some, they come to work and they don't necessarily go out of their way to meet new people. And I think it can be because they're sometimes a little nervous to go up to some people. I've never had that problem. I have my insecurities and I have my own shyness, but my, the way that I exhibit my shyness is by talking (laughs) and, um, and, convenient. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I wish I had that. <laughs> my sister, my older sister is this, um, she's, she's so wonderful, but she's, she's very shy and she does it in a quiet way. So she always comes off as super cool. Cause she's like the quiet, you know, like the quiet, cool kid in the corner, but it's like, what is wrong with your family? I, I just, I just come off like when I'm at a place where I don't know people, I just come off as like a guy standing near the wall. <laughs> it's not, I, it does not like somehow transmute itself into like charisma. It does not. <laughs> She would probably disagree. She'd say that she comes. I think everyone, I think everyone is like, we are, we all exist within like our own, like, you know, like insecure headspace, but I don't, I like go into the middle of the crowd and I'm like, Hey, what's up? That's what I do. Parties. It's really weird. Anyway. So, so I think that like when, if you have somebody that can kind of like bring people together, they appreciate it. A lot of people want to help find the other like-minded spirits in the room. Mm. And so I think a lot of that is just, you know, I think about that, thinking about like what's like a great hostess or something at a party. How do you bring people together and make them spark off each other? But one thing I think is so interesting about that, and and it's something that I think about and do in a sort of different way than you do, but I watch a lot of people get really stymied at organizations. They bring their idea to the person hype and power and they either don't get enough time with the person or the, the person says no. And they get very caught up, I think, in chain of command and very frustrated by process. And often I think the problem is they get locked into like one way of doing things and often the way of doing things in a big organization that should be the most straightforward is actually not because that channel is overcrowded. And it's a really important skill to be able to find your own pathways to making things happen. Because in general, I think organizations do try to reward people who can make things happen. But in a sort of almost like tautologically frustrating thing, in order to get that payoff, you have to be making things happen, which they're not really letting you. You know what I mean? Like they both make it hard to make things happen and then heavily reward people who somehow manage to evade the blockades. I think a lot of people at that moment at the post, and this has happened at Vox to us as well. I mean, in, in terms of our, the way we run our own organization, right? it happens everywhere, no matter how much you're trying to work on it, just people get overwhelmed. And then some people like run into that overwhelmedness and get frustrated and then stop trying. And then like other people, I think you're really good at this, like find different 
ways you know, around it. Yeah, ways around it. I, yeah, I mean, I think that like I, this is one of the reasons why I think we work well together is because I think both of us make decisions in whether you say that I do them off the cuff or or in it, like with like measured reason reasons behind it. I think that like we we have an urgency that we want to make a choice and we don't set up our systems and our businesses and our society a lot of times to reward decision making. I think sometimes. There's a lot of safety checks in in businesses because you if you change a process or you change a, an idea or not a change an idea, but like not push forward an idea, it can disrupt other systems. You know, there's a reason why people are nervous about it. There's revenue hinging on it. There's mm-hmm. people's jobs hinging on it. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that are connected to every single part of an organization. And it sometimes can build up processes, I think, can build up these big walls that tell people don't change anything. Don't make choices. Just keep doing what you've been doing. And I don't think that you and I have ever paid much attention to that. <laughs> but there's, it's funny. The way you put it is really good. I think there's a way in which you could almost see it as rational from the perspective of the organizational entity. Launching new things is hard and it's risky and it can have blowback and it can fail. And so if you make it somewhat hard to launch new things, then the people who are able to do it have in some ways passed a test. I don't think that's how anybody thinks of it, but but you could actually imagine it as a um, as an adaptive mechanism w- within the organization. Although it is funny, you and I have the exact opposite way of dealing with organizational inertia, wherein you like find all the people and meet everybody and I sort of have a tendency like to retreat, like create some space where I can retreat and just do whatever I want without anybody. <laughs> I'll like put like, I will not coordinate. I will not like give people the opportunity to say no. They you, both kind of work sometimes, but, uh, but they're I very different. I don't think that's totally true. I think that sometimes you in your head think of yourself as like very much like an individual contributor. But I, I, but I think that this is like, and I think sometimes because you're the Ezra Klein with the Ezra Klein show, like it, there's like a public sometimes perception that you are the single entity. And this is, I think, why when we started Vox, people, you know, referred to it as like the Ezra Klein show. (laughs) Um, But the truth is that what the reality of it is, is that you are, you are also a consensus builder and you are a team builder. I mean, there's, you, you enjoy collaboration. You enjoy working with colleagues. You mentioned Sarah Cliff, you know, there's, you've been working with Sarah Cliff for six years now. Is that right? One more. I think that you find um, strength in that. And I think that this is one of the things that I've learned the most is that it's really difficult to do any work without having partners in crime and having co-conspirators and colleagues that you trust. And I think that that is something that you really recognize and, and you've developed friendships and partnerships over the years that you have continued with you as you've gone through your career. Yeah, there's something to that. I mean, it's definitely true. And it's definitely more true within the Vox context and other, than other contexts. But in media, the ways in which you could effectively get things done changed at a certain point. Like, And I really feel like I lived through this change that for a while... If you wanted to be a blogger at some of these institutions, even at a place like the American Prospect, which was very small and and, and had bloggers before me, you were sort of acting a little bit as a – I don't mean for the word to sound this cool, but like as like a bit of a renegade, you were doing it a little bit on your own. You were begging forgiveness rather than asking permission. I mean there there was that dimension to it and you were doing it because what you were doing wasn't all that widely respected oftentimes – And so you had to get space to prove that it was good. And I felt like during a lot of that, like some of the most important managerial decisions I made at different times were refusing to let something get put into process where people who I knew wouldn't understand its value could judge it, you know, without 
calling out individual examples of that, that was really important. Like there was a time and, and you knew me at, 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 during one of these times when I was very, I was very careful about who was allowed to like have a say. And I would let go of opportunities rather than force those opportunities into a process I didn't trust. And then at a certain point that really flipped. It flipped, it flipped at major institutions like the post. And I just think it flipped more broadly. And not just the leadership of these places, which often wanted to change more than the middle did, but everybody wanted to like figure out these new products. And then all of a sudden, in order to build really great products, then you needed a lot more people in the game because it wasn't just you carving out a little space on your own. It was you needed product work, you needed design work, you needed, you know, there's going to be a revenue component. Suddenly you needed way more parts of the organization bought in and you could get them bought in. And I think like the skill set that was required there flipped. And if I were going to say like why I think our partnership worked out really well, it's I didn't have that skill set. Like I learned a lot of that from you. Um, that was not how I operated. I would get like one patron and then just like try to get as much protection as I could. But I, I think it's a really different space right now. And I think it's really different for people in media. You sometimes hear people talk about things like legacy publishers. And I don't think those things matter anymore. I mean, the Post is genuinely, I think, as innovative a place as exists in American journalism right now. And there's just a very, very, very different attitude to when, like when Raju brought us in and was like very much like, we're going to shake things up. Right. Like, you're not, you're not shaking things up now. You're just doing stuff. Well, I mean, I think that that's, I think that's the challenge that you and I have. And I think that we're constantly kind of like pushing ourselves is that like, I said co-conspirators and I mean, we, there was a, there was like a little bit of a renegade fun, rebellious spirit to, to the first part of our career. And yeah, that's fucking gone. <laughs> yeah. And now, and now like, we're, like what happens when you become the man, you know, like that's, that's yeah. the part that I think that like is, has been like a big shift for us. And I think it happened so much faster than I think we expected it to, where we're not the people like protesting the management. We are the management like that. That's, that's a major changeover and trying to figure out how to continue to like operationalize the work that we're doing, but then still be renegades. It, like, I think that that is kind of what is possibly like a struggle for both of us. Do you think that that's... I'm, I'm, I just think I've given up on it. <laughs> you're, just, you're just accepting <laughs> your state as the man. Yeah, I mean, it's a very... I mean, you and I talk about this all the time, but we have to create a context in which other people can do really good work, right? Like that's really the job. And like one of the things that I, I struggle with in a very deep way is that my writing now feels selfish to me, that when I do – actually to some degree things like this podcast feel selfish to me, right? That this stuff keeps me saner than I otherwise would be, but I don't think the best version of the editor-in-chief of Vox.com is spending as much time as I do on their own work. Uh, I just don't. And I think that one of the important things in, in a project like this is being willing to give things up. And I think I've given a bunch of them up, but not all of them. And, you know, one of them is like that, that feeling of being a renegade, right? It bums me out when I'm like policing how people can be on Twitter, right? Like I remember when I was an asshole on Twitter, like that happened. You were definitely an asshole on Twitter. Um, I was an asshole in a lot of ways. And... <laughs> But in order to build something that can exist to support and protect a lot of people, you just have to be playing with a very different set of skills and be taking your validation from a very different set of signals and, and on and on. Yeah. I think 
the shift has been possibly harder for you than it was for me because I was already operating in a space of multiple groups across multiple teams and sort of putting them all together in pieces. Whereas I do think it was more of a dramatic change for you. But I do think that you've actually, I mean, I don't totally agree with you that this is a selfish, like this podcast is selfish. I think that one of the things that I've learned is that you have to say yes to certain things and say no to other things so you can continue to do good. You have to kind of give yourself space to do good work. And so it's almost more important for you to have a couple of seemingly selfish activities that keep you sane so you can continue to do the tougher work, I guess. So putting me aside, what did you learn from starting Vox? What was different about that experience than you thought it would be? Everything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think one thing that I've learned is that I've learned a lot more confidence in myself. I think that I've learned that I am not just making all of this up, that I do know something. (laughs) What do you know? What do you, when you think about what it is that you have like a theory on a point of view on like, what what is it? I think there's a couple things. I think that one thing that I think we've proved out really well is actually creating an identity, a strong identity for ourselves and an identity that is recognizable to audiences and that audiences can love. I think that when we started, we had a brand that was a little bit of like what people knew about Wonkblog and expected from Wonkblog and from a couple of our members of our team, like Matt and you and Sarah and other and other folks like that. We started off with an advantage because there was a recognition to it. But I think we really created something with Vox that audiences really love and care about that that is a different thing, and that is a different identity. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud that we had sort of this point of view, this idea that took shape. And I think that there's still a wide audience of people who want to feel an affinity for something that they want to, that they want to put their trust in something like Vox. You mentioned how much you loved the Washington Post and the New York Times and you're growing up. And we're in a space where we are able to build those brand identities a lot quicker than you were years ago. But I appreciate that we are, that we're starting to build something like that for audiences that, that want to come to a place and say like this, I, this is where I want to get my information from. So I think that that's one thing that I, that I think we did well. I also really feel like I've learned a lot about managing teams and learning from people and seeing how I might not have every skill set in the book, but I can I can use my skills in certain ways and then rely on you for other skills and then rely on some of our other teammates for their their skills and how that power, the power of a team comes together and can like really be be really successful. I think that that's really when I see Vox shine is when there's a big news story happening and our and the entire team rallies around it and everyone's contributing to it. We're so much stronger as that unit together. So I think that those are the two things that I that I really believe in. And then I also think that like the truth is, is that like, I think that we always made a bet that there was an audience out there that was looking for quality information online. And I think that there is, I think people are really curious and want, want to understand what's happening in the world around them. And I think sometimes in the past, I felt like there's been a question, sort of like this condescending question about whether audiences care. And I think audiences really do care. I think people want to know more than we have potentially thought they did in the past. I'm always interested by how wrong a lot of our initial intuitions were mm. in ways that worked out okay. Yeah. But to be maybe less complimentary to us. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're great. It's the best. You asked but me what I learned. But I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be tougher on us. 
I think we really came in with a product theory of journalism, a theory of how you would combine a rebuilt publishing system with certain capabilities of the internet to make content persistent, to make it continuously available, to make it easily updated, to make journalism less wasteful. Mm -hmm. And I think we actually did do some of that. You know, and you saw it in things like card stacks, which when I go back to the beginning, the amount of our mind space that were taken up by card stacks, mm -hmm. it's like 75%. You know, I mean, it was the instantiation of like all of our ideas, right? We were also going to write articles, but really like we were going to bring out these ways of collecting topical knowledge base level information, continuously update them, continuously attach them to new stories and, and make it all accessible to the audience. And I love that idea so much. And it was so core to the way we thought about it. And it did inform in funny ways, like everything else we did too. But the product theory, because of the way that platform splintered, where you most of your audience is finding you on Facebook Instant Articles and Google AMP and YouTube and like Snapchat and all these places you don't control. It was really different. And we were lucky, I think, because we had a product theory that was like kind of an editorial point of view and it ended up creating a kind of editorial that really built a big audience. But like it's a different thing, right? Like then I wonder if like we, we needed a theory that different to make the break. And in some ways, I think we're a lot less different than that. Like there are, there are ways in which we're different, but I think it was so technological. And if it hadn't been as technological, like I wonder if we would have like had the courage to do it. Yeah, I think you're really right. So you asked me what what I know, and yeah, what I'm I think jumping I, around. No, no, no. But I think that this is this is what, this is what I the, what you just made me think about. What I think I know is also that like there's so much that we don't know, and yeah. we don't know about how journalism is forming up. What we did was that we created a product that would have worked really well if we were in an environment where you still had strong website audiences and that was consistently growing. What we've seen across the industry is that like the website audiences are there, but we are seeing two or three or four times larger audiences off our websites. We did not totally get that when we were walking into Vox at all. We had like hints of it, but we did not, we were not as focused on it. If we had, I don't, I mean, maybe we would have never even like built a website to start, but. It's, but, it's just all. It's just all in the ether. Just all floating <laughs> it would just all there. be text messages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be messenger first. No, but I mean, I mean, look at it. Like the way that we represent Vox now is, is in podcasts. It's in, I mean, mm. it really is actually in the air. Like there's, it's a, it's on YouTube. It's, you know, it's, it's, all over the place. It's so distributed. So you're totally right. Our main theory, our core theory changed. But what, what I appreciate about us is that like we took those theories and they are sort of diffused through the rest of the things that we do. I think that you're right that it's closer to what it's not as different as we'd want it to be. And I think that that kind of always makes me like we still haven't solved yeah. this fundamental problem of like really helping people you know, find the information they need wherever they are. Like, but I do think that it's, that passion is still there and everything that we're trying to do. And so that's what I appreciate about not getting it right every yeah, single time. You know this stuff about anybody, but I would say about a year ago, I went through kind of like a dark night of the soul on this question. Mm -hmm. um, and he really did too. Yeah, it was really, it was funny. really hard. <laughs> um, funny, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm amused by your tortured soul. Um, a line that we talked about a lot when we launched and, and I still think about a lot is that if you can print the site out, staple together and put on somebody's doorstep and it makes sense like we're doing a bad job, mm -hmm. right? Like we're clearly not using this new technology well if that, mm -hmm. if that is true. 
And, you know, I'd say at some points, like we were a little closer to that than we should have been. Something I'm happy about now, but it's different than the way I thought it would be, was I think with card stacks, there was an idea of like we could create one big innovation. Right. Right. And that would change the way the whole thing worked. And we still like card stacks. I'm very proud of and we still use them. Mm -hmm. But they're just like they're not going to change the whole game. Right. I think that's clear. Now what I'm finding is like we are continuously different in a lot of like smaller ways that are all themselves growing individually. So the video team is just unfucking believable and different, right? You couldn't do that on print. And you couldn't in many ways even do that on television, right? Television itself is a very constrained medium. And the graphics and data team, right? We have just like much more use of that kind of thing than was practical to do in print. You have interactives, which you literally couldn't have done. Podcasting is something I'm I'm really happy about in this way too. We do a lot more, I think, updating articles now. And we've gotten much better at thinking about how to do that. But it's funny. I think that I was very taken with the idea that we could come up with one thing and that would – and I think, I think we had a good theory of it actually. That would be the big change. And instead – We have had to have, I always think of us as having like a couple points of view about how the internet is changing what you can do. And we've just had to apply those points of view a lot of different times in ways that create a product that in aggregation, in in aggregation, in in sort of cumulative Mm -hmm. is quite different than what, you know, came before it, than what we were able to be doing 10 years ago. Like you wouldn't look and be like, that's the one difference. Right. Right. I, and I think that that's like what I what is actually really interesting to me about the way that it's progressed. Truthfully, I'm proud of that in a lot of ways because I do feel like what we have done overall is very different. You know, we have all of these different parts. You've mentioned a lot of them that are not the pieces that you can print out. But I think the core writing group they influence so much of like what yeah, goes totally. off into like the atomic spaces that it all feels to me like this like really great system in place to create these different access points for readers or for viewers or for listeners. And that feels to me really promising. We didn't burn everything down and create like the new way that people are plugging into information into their head. But I think that like we are actually like building this in a way that I think can actually be um, even more sustainable and more, I don't know, quietly revolutionary. That it's more adaptable. It's more adaptable, right? Like yeah. it's more adaptable to technological change. Yes, right. Yes. We're not like all all bought into one thing. That if there's a like a new social network, all of a sudden mm-hmm. that you're totally fucked. That that is one thing too. I mean, the two things I didn't know would matter as much as they did. Well, one I one I did, one I didn't. Like the whole place flows from the writing, right? Mm-hmm. And being smart about formats, I didn't think as clearly about, I think I had my, like, there's articles and then there's, like, card stacks. And one of the things that I'm the most proud of at Vox is different article formats that the writers have come up with. So, like, Julie Blues' Show Me the Evidence mm-hmm. is one of my favorite things we've done. And Alvin Chang's Illustrated Explainers, which are articles of a, of a sort, are really kind of amazing. And just, like, the explainers themselves, which are a format that existed before us, but not, I think, in the way we do it. And it's really interesting. And, and I see it now, like when we onboard new people, like how different actually writing for Vox is in ways that I'm not sure are 100% clear from the outside. Like you read it and it works. 
And then you come in, it's like, oh, like actually it has developed this very unusual writing culture, which is why I think the thing actually works. But the other is brand. I really came in not thinking brand would matter that much. It's not like we gave any thought to name really beforehand. <laughs> like that's just not how we were thinking about it because I had really bought the line that the social web would disaggregate everything and people would find things individually and they wouldn't care where it came from. It'd be like, a, you know, shared on the authority of your friends. And I've been so struck how much brand matters in this era, like not just for us, but also for our competitors, you know, particularly as people go into new platforms. I mean, in some ways, I think brand got more important because people became more skeptical of what they were seeing and more drowned in content. But I, we were lucky that we ended up with a starting like approach that created a strong brand, but I think we were lucky. <laughs> like I, think, I hadn't been thinking about it. I mean, I think that we were, but like, you know, about like the blog thing that I did at the post where I went through all of them and sort of like figured out their audiences. Do, do you I'm know not about sure this? I do. Okay. So uh, one of the things that I did, I told you that there was like 113 blogs, but over time we moved to 42 blogs. We sunsetted yeah. like a large number of them. And I think that we probably could have gotten even smaller uh, to be truthful about it. But the way that we kind of like looked at each blog, whether we would keep it or, or um, get rid of it was around, does it have like a loyal audience? Are people coming back? Does it have a big audience? Are a lot of people coming to it? Does it have some special like revenue sponsorship, like the Microsoft editorial sponsorship that you mentioned? Advertisers really like to buy it, advertising around that blog. Those were kind of the three things that we looked at for each one. And then also, of course, like, is it an important like, you know, editorial story that they're trying to tell on there? But when you sort of like get it down to like that small of an evaluation, what you'd often find is that like there were blog brands that people knew. So there was certain blogs like Wonk Blog that had both a really large audience, but also like a really loyal audience. And then there was blogs that were, had a big audience, but nobody knew the name. It wasn't something that they felt like there was not like an affinity for it. So maybe those should just be articles so that maybe those could just be popular articles on the Washington Post website. But I did learn that having this sort of like magical combination of like a place that people wanted to come back to and knew that it was a name that they could almost like say, I'm a, you know, I'm a reader of Wonk Blog ties people together in a way that I, that I think it, that I really learned a lot of lessons from. And I think, and I think you're really right. It's proven true with Vox that we, that we've been able to create something and it does matter because whether they find Vox on YouTube or they find Vox on a podcast, there's a shared affinity between all of those spaces. And it is hugely important. I think people are like, well, you know, on Facebook, everything's going to go away because there's such a small line for the name of the brands. But what we've seen is actually more brand recognition, even though it's a small little tidbit on there. Yeah, I, I think we had really misunderstood the way people latch to brands, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it isn't because you have a huge banner. <laughs> it's actually right. like, can you, I think it's an important like thing. Is there anything for somebody to like to love in right. your right. brand, right? Like, is there, like, can you imagine who that would be? Uh, you know, it's funny, an organization I really respect is The Economist. Mm -hmm. And I respect it for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's just a great publication. But I remember in college that I knew all these kids who subscribed to The Economist, not so much because they read it, but because subscribing to The Economist said something about them. And I remember thinking like then, like, my God, like what a powerful thing to have created. Instead of you doing something for it, it does something for you. You're just buying it because it provides you a service. You're buying it as part of your identity. And I also thought like that was just the most amazing thing and like the most amazing um, like firewall for a, for an organization to have. And I think it's no accident that The Economist has weathered a lot of the 
in my as I understand it, I could be wrong at this point, but last I had heard, Economist has weathered a lot of like the transition a lot better than a lot of places have. This is like why I actually think magazines had an easier time moving onto the web yeah. because what you just described is like essentially like a social network experience where people put out Dwell magazine on their oh, coffee yeah, table right. to like show that they have like an arty side, or they put like the Economist, you know, like on the side table because they want to show yeah. that they're like very brilliant, and that's the same thing people do sometimes do on their Facebook walls. They that's put, a great point. Yeah, they they're you know sort of displaying the magazine covers that they care about. And I think that I think that was difficult because the places like the Washington Post or the New York Times, they didn't they didn't they were coming at it like where it's you're going to get those papers regardless because that is how you 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 live in the city yeah. and you get the paper delivered and that's how you get the news delivered. And it almost didn't matter. You know, maybe back when there was like newspaper wars, it mattered a little bit more. But but after a certain period of time in San Diego, Everyone got the San Diego Union Tribune. You know, there was one paper that we all got. So it mattered less showing that you were a San Diegan (laughs) by getting that paper. I think that's super interesting. And it's actually a really good framework for thinking about which of the newspapers have done well online. So the New York Times stands for a sort of cosmopolitan educated urbanism, right? It it is a by reading the New York Times, you are saying something about yourself. The Wall Street Journal stands for finance and Mm -hmm. business. The Washington Post stands for politics and power. The LA Times, which was my paper growing up, has really struggled despite at another point being in the weight class of those papers. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because it wasn't clear what it stood for. I think there's a world where the LA Times stood for culture, stood for Hollywood, stood for cultural production. And I don't think it quite achieved that. It didn't become the thing that showed that you were culturally in touch. And I think that probably would have been the avenue for it being a really national paper brand. I actually think that they, in the last, like the last year, there's been an attempt to move towards that. I think that they did like a really good coverage around like the Oscar diversity issues mm-hmm. and they they were pushing into culture in like smart ways. But I think that it's really, the LA Times is so much more in danger because of the larger corporation that they belong to. It's much harder to take bets like that, to say, we're yeah. going to go all in. And you saw that, you know, one of the things that I saw with the Washington Post, I always felt this about the Post when I came as an, you know, like a a new kid on the block, like, I was like, you have no idea how cool you are. Like you have, mm-hmm. like everyone in this building has no idea how amazing the Washington Post is. Like, I'm like, I'm thrilled to be here. Like Ben Bradley, like, you know, was like by my, um, would walk by my desk. I had, there was one moment where uh, Woodward and Bernstein walked by my desk fighting about where their old desks were <laughs> in, the, in the newsroom. And I was just like, God, this is the coolest place ever. It wasn't shared internally, and that feeling of like pride wasn't shared internally, and I and I think it really shifted once the revenue model mm-hmm. was no longer at risk, and you can see that over the last year they've gotten that swagger back. Yeah, they've totally. gotten that. They've been able to to commit to this idea that like now you know like there was always great journalism being produced there, and there's always great people working hard at the place, but like now they they're the one that Trump is banning, and that's they're the one uh-huh. that like is able to like you know have their owner fly off to um, Iran. And there's a there's a gravitas that they have, but it's it's I think in large part because there's more confidence in their business. Yeah, I think it was so great when they um, there were those months. It may still be going on. I've, I've not been checking, but where they passed the New York Times and Comscore, uh, which is like one of the big audience metrics. And then they started putting out ads saying the new paper of record. <laughs> I was like, good for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that like that is like a, yeah. a real swagger back. And it's yeah. a, in some ways, I think the like. They've run that place great, but the real great thing that Jeff Bezos was able to do 
was just create a context for confidence again. Right. And you could just, you can just feel the confidence right. coming out of that place in a way that, yeah, when we like, it was a lot better by the time we left, but like yeah. when we were starting, when I was starting there, it was just so unsure. Yeah. And people were so self-deprecating and felt like dinosaurs. And, and I totally, I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You're worried about blogs? Right. Cause I think, I, I mean, I think that that is like really like a true fact is that people did a ton of work to get it to a really, to a, to a yeah. more healthy place. The time period that we there so much work went into making it a better a better paper that i felt like it actually had it would be successful even if bezos hadn't bought it like there was a there was an upward trend going yeah, in i there. think that's right too um although but he was able to do a huge but investment. he was able to do a huge investment he just kick-started that place yeah. in like in like a way that i think you're right is like the context of confidence and i think that that's important i think that that's another thing that i've really learned is it's important to take pride in in your work and to take pride in in what you have, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so. you, you you keep trying to tell me that. As <laughs> <laughs> Ruby Proud, damn it. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I feel I mean I think that like I this is this is actually something that we we haven't talked about at all and I have no idea how much time we have, but we can talk about it for a long time. There's a difference between you and I, and I think it actually is is really gendered is in our confidence capabilities. I think that I've learned confidence from you and Matt in a way that I didn't naturally have. Um and I really appreciate that. I think that I was I was able to understand how to to fight in a more confident way and to believe in my opinions in a more confident way than I did before. And I and I and to take pride in my work in a way that I didn't before. See, that's funny because I think that you are a lot better at taking pride in your work than I am. Oh, that's interesting. You're almost always like having to tell me though. <laughs> <laughs> To stop just focusing on all the negatives and <laughs> Well that well, yeah, maybe you're right. I, I think that the the difference though is that I think that you have a, it's a difference about focus because you can get really focused. I, I I always think about this. You focus in really specifically on one on one issue, and usually because we all have like a negativity bias in, in, as humans, you can focus on the problem mm-hmm. instead of like seeing like the the scape of like in like the aggregate we're doing really well. So to me, that's like less of like a confidence issue than it is like a, yeah, that, like a that focus, might be a focus issue. issue. So what is the advice you give to young journalists right now? Hmm. I think to pursue, to pursue what they're most curious about and to follow that curiosity. My curiosity led me to India, which led me to this totally random life that I now have. But I was curious and I let myself go down that line. Do you think if you're a college student who wants to get into journalism, do you think you should go to graduate J school? I think you should not go to school right after you graduate from college. I think you should do something totally random. Um, go kayak in Costa Rica. Snowboard. And snowboard and, and fail. Vale. <laughs> yeah. Go find a job, you know, go, go, you know, work, work at a pizza counter in Rhode Island, do something for a little while and then go back to school. But I think it's, I don't, I don't think it's good to like actually jump from college to grad school right away. What is the best advice you've gotten? Marcus Broccoli, who was our editor at The Post. There was a time when I was not necessarily loved. <laughs> I think that I was introducing things and changing things in a way that that some people were troubled by. And he said something. Marcus is, Marcus is wonderful. He kind of has this like hokey old timey wisdom a little bit. Um, and he said, if you're going to be a pioneer, you got to be okay with taking a few arrows. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like him. Yeah. And it was kind of, it was kind of nice. It was, it was a good reminder to tell me that sometimes, you know, not everyone's going to like you and you got to be okay with that. You got to trust in the, in the people that you do 
that you do have confidence in and that they're giving you good feedback. What is something you believe is true? It doesn't have to be about journalism that most people think is false. That Santa Claus exists. Do you actually believe that's true? <laughs> sort of. I mean, I believe that he existed as a human being. I will say this. I, I, believe, I really do believe in like the stories that we tell ourselves, like Santa Claus, like as this is, um, this is a random answer. But um, I think this is why I'm so fascinated by religion is because I really love religious stories for how they represent our history and our, the stories that we tell, what we tell of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a part of me that kind of believes it. All right. I'm not sure I understand if you believe if Santa Claus is real, but... <laughs> I kind of do a little bit. All right. <laughs> uh, fair enough. And finally, what are three books that have influenced you that you think people should read? Pride and Prejudice. I had to go back to... Why? Jane Austen. Because I think the writing is so beautiful and smart and the way that she's able to observe characters and to be both kind and true to the not so kind parts of people um, is really amazing. I think she's able to present that there's good and bad in equal measures in every person and that you have to take that and take that with people. I loved a hundred years of solitude. I thought that was such a, I love, I love words and the play that people can put together. That book is po- poetry the whole way mm-hmm. through. Yeah, that book's amazing. Um, I also think that it like really opens up this uh, imagination in a really compelling way. It makes you see that time is tied together and there's histories that we all share in mm-hmm. different ways. And then the boxcar children. <laughs> did, did you just name just books you were assigned in class growing up? <laughs> Let me think about like one word that's like a little bit more. I actually, you know what I love? This is, a, this is actually not really a book, but The Pursuit of Happiness by um, Myra Coleman. Um, she's an illustrator that did a column for the New York times and reading to me is a lot of like, is a way that I take that is sort of my safe space. It's the place Mm -hmm. that I go to for kind of like peace. And, uh, that book is, is so calming and so loving towards other humans that I think people should read that regularly. Melissa Bell. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. All right. That was Melissa Bell. Thank you to her for spending the time, to all of you for tuning in. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. I will see you next week. to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.